So we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you'll remember, this is about the, our fourth, fourth or fifth week uh, in Ephesians. Uh, we began with Ephesians chapter 1, in which Paul exposes for us this great salvation, all of the, the blessings that we have in Christ uh, and, and our salvation is the work of the Father who planned it, who preordained it. It's the work of the Son who actually, Jesus came and He actually lived and died. He did it. He accomplished it. And then the work of the Spirit as well, who applies all of those blessings to us. And then in the second half of chapter 1, Paul prays that we would, that the Spirit would indeed open our eyes so that we would know and experience and live out truly now here and in the here and now this great salvation that we have had from through 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 God done by Jesus and indeed the salvation that we have is not something for in the next life it's something for right now that you can know and experience the peace of God all of those spiritual blessings the hope the the purpose in life we can experience those now through the immense power of Christ in us and then in chapter 2 last week we looked at this idea that we were once dead in sins you were enemies of God you were not his friends there's a, a big separation there. And this week, he's talking about them, to them together as a group because God deals both with individuals and with groups of people. And so Paul begins in verse 11 by addressing the Gentiles. He says, you who are called uncircumcision by those who are called by what is called the circumcision. So he's distinguishing between Gentiles and Jews. And he's talking to the Gentiles. And so he's just going to give a brief context of what circumcision is about, what it means in the Old Testament. So Israel in the Old Testament had two roles. The first role is this this role of being God's people. Israel was where God's presence dwelt. That was was their first role. The second role was that they were meant to be a, a priestly witness or a light to the other nations to lead them to the one true God. Those were the two roles. They had a a role of being the people of God where God dwells and a witness to the other nations. And the covenants and circumcision as a physical sign and the law were given to Israel so that they could accomplish those two things. The covenants, the promises of God, the circumcision to physically distinguish the Jews from the surrounding nations and the law... Were all meant, they were given to Israel so that they would be a holy people so that their sin would not offend God so that he could dwell amongst them. But also so that they would be distinct from all of the other nations. And the other nations would go, huh, what's different about them? They're blessed and they're different. Yeah? Those are the two roles of Israel. And so the Gentiles in that context had two problems. Two problems. They had a human problem. They were distinct. That's why Paul says that they were uncircumcised and the Jews were circumcised. They had a very human problem. They were not Jewish. They were separated from the Jewish. And the Jewish nation is where God dwelt. So they had a human problem. In fact, if you look at, and if you know the Old Testament and even in the Gospels as well, you see it, that actually Gentiles and Jews were detestable to one another. 
So it wasn't just the fact that God had separated Israel out from other nations. It was also that those practices that God gave Israel, they be, Israel found they became spiritually prideful. They looked down on the other nations rather than being a witness to them. And as a result, the Gentile nations looked at Israel's practices and thought, that's ridiculous. That's, we don't like that. And so there was, there was a human problem. The Gentiles were separated from, and Paul calls this human problem in verse 14, a dividing wall of hostility. There was a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But more importantly, he says in verse 12, there was also a divine problem. Look at what he says in verse 12. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ. They were separated from, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. They were the chosen one. They were separated from, they had no messianic hope. The hope that one day someone would come to put everything right. They didn't have that. Neither does, Paul says, were they, they were also separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they weren't, National Jews, they weren't part of, they wouldn't have citizenship, sorry, in Israel. They didn't have any of the rights and privileges. They didn't know the presence of God in their midst. They were alienated from Israel. And lastly, he says, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants are the way that God divulged himself to Israel. Contained in the covenants are God's character, his faithfulness, his goodness. And the Gentiles, those things were, they were strangers and aliens to those things. And so Paul ends that and he says, you had no hope and you were without God. They were godless and hopeless. Paul's not using this as, as, as an opportunity. He doesn't want us to read this and go, oh, we can be against Jews. We're against Israel. They, they got it wrong and they, they messed up. No, this is not what Paul's saying here. This is not an excuse for anti-Semitism in that sense. What he is saying is that we, all of us who are Gentiles, we don't use that word anymore, but that's what we are. We don't have that heritage. All of us, we are separate, separated both individually, we saw that last week, and corporately from the life of God. Friends, we, I don't know if you've noticed but the Six Nations are on. Does anyone watch rugby? I've been watching the rugby. But football, rugby, any of those things, we get a lot of pride from our country. Anyone follow World Cup, European Cup, when those things are on? No, no football fans. Okay, okay, thank you. Okay, a little worried here. Yeah, but we love to support our country. And what Paul is saying is, in the same way that there's nothing you've done as an individual that can make you right with God. You're dead in your sins individually. There's nothing from whatever community, whether that's your nation, your, your, your immediate community, your family, your, your, your ethnic background, your culture. There's nothing that any, from any of those things that you can get that can make you right with God. You tracking with me there? Individually and corporately. We're, in the West, we tend to be pretty individualistic. And sometimes the corporate stuff is there. We just don't see it as much. But it's there. And Paul is saying, no. There's nothing 
you were completely alienated, strangers to the life of God. And friends, this is, this is good news as well. If you come from a, 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 a culture, and those cult, these in England now, we have cultures of backgrounds, all different kinds together. And so if you come from a culture that is honor and shame, and you have a family that has been shamed, and you're trying to get out of that shame, someone in your family, you yourself has been, have done that, have done something shameful, and you've been alienated, you're strangers from your community. Jesus has the answer. He has the answer. We see this on with in our in, in some of the follow some of the media stuff, and we've got woke culture. Woke culture has lots of honor shame stuff to it. If you say the wrong thing, you get canceled, and there's no forgiveness. That's honor shame right there. But Jesus says, "No, I've got the answer," because actually, there's nothing you can do to earn honor. There's nothing you can do to earn your status based on where you come from. The Gentiles were hopeless and godless, but Christ, through his redemptive work, he rectified the situation in an unprecedented way. In verse 13, we get two details. He says, but now, there's that but now again into that hopeless situation from the outside, God steps in, in the form of Christ Jesus. And those who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near. And moreover, he says in verse 14, Jesus has made both one. Jesus has made Jew and Gentile one. So he's brought those who are far near and the two who were divided by a wall of hostility have become one. How did he accomplish that? The key to it is in verse 14. For he himself, that's Jesus, Jesus himself is our peace. It's not something specifically that he does, although that's part of it. It's not just, it's, it's he himself, his very person is our peace. He himself, Paul underlines that, that's why the word himself is there. It's like he's got it in bold. Jesus, him, his very person, is our peace. In other words, if, if Jesus made peace and then stepped away from our situation, peace would no longer exist because he is essential to us having peace with God and with one another. He himself is our peace, his ongoing presence. And in verse 13, Paul gives us two, two details. He says it's by his blood. And then down in verse 17, verse 16, sorry, through his cross, by his blood and through the cross. Friends, this is the picture of propitiation. Propitiation is the idea that, that, that God is angry about something and a sacrifice needs to be offered, offered in order to appease the God. Or gods. We, we see this in, 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 in other religions. The ra- God was angry, justly angry at sin. He was justly, and in, in a good way, he was angry at sin. His wrath was against sin. It needed to be propitiated. And Jesus came and he offered that sacrifice by his blood on the cross. And Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 say that we now, because of Christ's work, have Peace with God. 
But friends, by his blood is also a redemptive act. Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, he says, the church has been bought, purchased with the blood of Christ. So this, this act, our status as, 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 as saved ones is written in the blood of Christ, friends. The precious blood of Christ. There's nothing more precious, more powerful than his blood to be able to save us, to purchase us back from sin. He himself is our peace. How, did, how is, let's, let's want to dive in because Paul gives us a couple more details about how Jesus accomplishes this in his body, in himself. Verse 14, if we keep reading, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his physical body, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Ah, how did he do that? In verse 15, Paul says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He abolished the law which is expressed in commandments and ordinances. Jesus came and in his flesh, he abolished the law. What does that mean? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that he did not come just to destroy, he did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. So the first thing that he did is he came on earth as a man and he, he fulfilled the law. All of the stuff in the Old Testament. He, he fulfilled the predictions by the prophets. Every single one of them. He upheld the holy standard of the law. He was perfect. And he personally obeyed all of its requirements. Every sacrifice that was meant to be offered. That's why in the Gospels, in, in Matthew and, and in, in Luke, it's very specific about that Mary and Joseph went up and they offered the right sacrifices at the right time so that we know that through his whole life, he personally upheld all of the requirements. And finally, he fully satisfied all of the ceremonial observances by dying on the cross. He fulfilled the whole law, all of it. Such that Paul can now say that he has abolished it. That word abolish is, is, it means nullified or, uh, or rendered inop- inactive, inoperative. It means for that for those who are in Christ, the law has, has no purpose anymore. The law has no purpose anymore. Friends, in our, uh, I hear people talking about the importance of being a principled, a moral person, a person of strong conviction. And all of it comes around to this idea of being moral. But friends, the world is full of moral people who are spiritually dead. And what the world needs is not a moral church, but a spirit-filled church. It doesn't mean a moral church. And actually, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, that the law has one purpose. It's to show us where we go, we go wrong before we're in Christ. It can only tell you where you went wrong. It can't tell you how to go right. Jesus abolished the law so that, 
And this is where we get to the next thing he did. He, 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 he abolished the law in his flesh so that, that's the next part of the verse, that's the purpose. The purpose for abolishing the law was so that he might create in himself, there it is again, in Christ, he himself is our peace. He wanted to create in himself one new man in place of two. He created one new man. What's this new man? It's the body of Christ. It's the church, a new corporate entity, not Jewish and not Gentile. It's the church, the body of Christ. Of whom Jesus is, if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 22, God gave Jesus as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. He created one new man in his body, And here's the third part. And then he took them, that one new body, and he reconciled both in one body to God. You see the picture? So Jews over here, Gentiles over here, they're separated. There's a wall of dividing hostility. It's a really visual picture. There's a dividing, there's a brick wall in between, keeping them separate. And Jesus came and he knocks down the wall And he doesn't add Gentile into Jew. He says, no, I'm going to create a new man, is the language Paul used, a new entity, the church, my body, and take believing Jews and believing Gentiles and put them in there. Yeah? It's a new man. And this new man that, that Paul talks about, that word new is something unprecedented, unforeseen. It's, it, the church doesn't, isn't there in the Old Testament. It's a new, it's a new thing such that Paul calls it a mystery, something that was previously hidden for ages and ages past and now has been revealed by Christ in the New Testament. He says it in chapter three and in chapter five in Philippians. This is a new thing that God has done. And, and actually it was, in a sense, it's highly offensive to both Jew and Gentile. I don't want to be in the same group. I'm not going to be on their team. It's like we're on the playground again. But Paul says he takes both. When, you, when, when Gentiles trust Christ, they, in a sense, leave their Gentileness behind. That's us. We're Gentiles. We leave our Gentileness behind, and we're placed in the church. Jews leave their Jewishness behind and are placed in the church. And now your primary loyalties, the people you're closest to, are not people from your own tribe, whatever that is, however you define that, but the people you're closest to are now those who are also in Christ. Friends, our our world needs that message today. This is not a picture that we're going to be able to create reconciliation in all of the world. No, the reconciliation exists between those who are in Christ. We're ambassadors of reconciliation in the sense that we call people to be reconciled to Christ. And in the process, they're reconciled to each other. The the, the, the picture is, have you ever, who bakes here? Anyone bake? Joe? Joe? No, you don't bake. Okay, I've baked on occasion. And you take the ingredients. You've got some flour and some egg and some sugar and baking soda, baking powder if you want them to get nice and puffy, and some butter if you want them to be really tasty, but you're not allowed to eat them afterwards. That's me. And you, and you have all of these separate ingredients. 
And what do you do? You mix them together, and then you put them into the oven, and they cook. And what comes out is not flour, baking soda, and, and sugar, and butter mixed together. No, it's a new thing. It's a cookie. Oh, a delicious thing. And that's the picture here. God took both. It's not Jew and Gentile in this new thing. No, it's, it's, it's the people of Christ in a new entity, the body. And so in that one body, God reconciled that body to God. And if you remember, the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament was to be the place where God was found. Access to God. And that's what Paul says now in verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to God. So the, the playing field has been leveled, if you will. Both Jew and Gentile now access God through Christ alone. There's no other way. Jesus is the way to God. What does this mean for us? We're going to look at the three pictures in a minute because they're clarifying, they're helpful. But what does this mean for us? I look around this room and what I see is a wonderful mixture of cultures and ethnicities and colors. Ah, oh, color. It's, God made us like this. And there's no place, that's the, that's the most obvious thing in the church, there's no place for racism or discrimination or ethnocentrism. And that's the worst of it. There's no place for any of the, the lesser stuff either. Because we don't relate to one another on the basis of color, on the basis of ethnicity anymore. We relate to, the base, uh, to each other on the basis of who we are in Christ. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't look at anyone according to the flesh anymore, but we look at them on the basis of whether or not they are in Christ. I saw my brother, Best, who's from Nigeria, who has a very different culture than me, whose skin is different than me, whose facial features are different than me, and gloriously so. He's my brother in a far deeper way than blood or water could ever make you my brother. Could someone say hallelujah? <laughs> this, is, this is good news for our city, friends. Because we live in a multicultural city. I look around Wolverhampton, I don't know if you've, maybe you've noticed, I look around Wolverhampton and I see, I see white folks, I see black folks from African background and from Caribbean background. I see South Asians, Indians, and there's some others, but those seem like those are the big ones. And friends, if we're going to be hope for our city, we need to minister. We're ambassadors of reconciliation to minister Jesus to those people so that they can be introduced into the church where they will find reconciliation to other human beings. That's our goal. That's our hope. That's our prayer for our city. That's who we want to be at City Church. A place where people have access to God through Christ, through his spirit, which is in us. The first two, he says, you are now fellow citizens with the saints and you are members of the household of God. This, these, these first two pictures, are, are, they point to how we as individuals, as groups, people relate in the church. Because the church two it has us relating, all of us relating vertically to God, if I can put it in that sense. 
And so the first two are that we, us together, we are citizens. Paul says in Philippians chapter three that our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are members of the same household, the family of God. Paul says in Galatians chapter three, six and verse three, he says, seek to do good to everyone, especially to the household. Because of that bond that we have, we are a blood-bought people. Fellow citizens who share the same loyalties, the same privileges, the same rights, and fellow family members who have the same intimacy, the same access to God. And then he ends with this. You are fellow citizens, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being dwelt together, sorry, built together into a dwelling place for God. So this, this new building, this new edifice is a temple and we're being built together. It says it's, it's got a foundation. What's the foundation? Anyone catch that? The foundation is the prophets and the apostles. That's and Jesus of the foundation is the cornerstone. He's the one in which everything else is, is judged, whether it's in line or not. As an aside, that's how you can know whether Jesus is in line in the sense of whether something is, is true or not. If it's true in Christ, then it's true. If it's not true in Christ and it ignores Jesus, then it's not true. That's why we make a big deal about Jesus. That's why I try and talk about Jesus all the time. Because if I talk to another believer and they don't like talking about Jesus, I know something's a little off. He's the cornerstone built on the foundation of the prophets. That's the Old Testament. And the apostles, that's the New Testament. And it says, in him, here it is, he is our peace. In him, the whole structure is being both joined together and built together. First Peter chapter 2 says that we are living stones being built into a temple where we can offer spiritual sacrifices. And Paul says later on in chapter 4 of Ephesians, listen to this, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16, he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we're being joined and built together, and we're meant to grow up into him, with which, uh, sorry, from, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by which it, which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So our goal is to grow up into Christ, and at some point, there's some momentum there, and we start building, not without Christ, but he's, we, we, the church builds itself up in love, in that sense. And it's this wonderful part of we can only do this by Christ who is in us, by the power of his spirit. But we have a part to play, and our goal is to grow up into Christ. And then he ends with that last note. You are being built together into a drill. Was the dwelling place, the temple in First Kings chapter 8. Solomon dedicates the temple to the God. He says, this will be an eternal dwelling place for you to dwell here forever. And now we body of Christ are 
the temple. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The church is, we individually are his dwelling place. And then we as individual dwelling places are being built up into a big dwelling place. What a wonderful picture. Friends, solitary Christian. Solitary Christians do not exist. That's very clear from Ephesians chapter 2. Because we've been in individual situation, corporate situation. Solitary Christians don't exist. Have you ever tried to be, I would never dare to say to one of my close friends who's married, man, I really like being friends with you, but actually I can't stand your wife. Best, how would that go over if I said that to you? Man, I love being friends, but I really don't want to hang out with Anita. She just... Amen. But when you're a solitary Christian, what you're saying is, I don't want to associate with the church, the bride of Christ. You're thumbing your nose at what Christ did on the cross. Because remember, the body of Christ is formed, is bought by his blood. And when you say, actually, church is not for me, I'm just going to do me and Jesus. What you're saying, you're thumbing your nose at Jesus and at his bride. Solitary Christians don't exist. We are fellow citizens, family members, part of a living stones in a temple which is being built up. I want to close with this wonderful picture from Revelation chapter 21. Here's what the Apostle John records. In Revelation chapter 20, when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. For the first heaven earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what John is seeing is this this new entity called the New Jerusalem, called the Bride of Christ. That's the church coming down out of heaven, finally to be given in marriage to the bridegroom, Jesus. And, he, and God says, this is where my dwelling place is. Use that word. We have access to God in the church. We're a building built up into a temple where we have God will dwell amongst us. I had a, a, a theology teacher who, of Old Testament. Every time this idea of God, his people, wants to be with his people, wants to dwell amongst his people, comes up, it comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. It comes up in John chapter 1 and verse 14 where Jesus came and dwelt among us. And he would, he would sit there and have an imaginary gong and go, bong, bong, bong. Here it is. This is the goal of God is to dwell amongst his people. And we have that now. We sung it this morning. We're here for you. We welcome you with praise and we look forward to it in eternity as well.